Good evening, everyone. This is our last evening presentation for Discovering Revelation. Do you realize that we have had 22 sessions together so far? And uh, I want to say thank you. It has been a privilege to present for you. And I hope that you come through this series having realized that you have learned new things from the Word of God. Amen? I also want to let you know that tonight's presentation has a, a component of things we've covered before. If you're joining us by video, I want to encourage you to watch our subject called Babylon Rising. That is a foundational subject for this. So if you're joining us and you're just kind of clicking through the topics, please watch Babylon Rising first. It is important as a foundational topic for this subject tonight. So before we begin, would you bow your heads with me as we open tonight with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we open the Bible together this evening to pray that you would speak to us, that your spirit would guide us and lead us into truth. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So to begin tonight, I want to give you a little history about the early Christian church as far as their view on this particular topic. When you survey Christian history, even in the first century, you have, sorry, it's third century, you have a Christian father by the name of Arrhenius who said and identified the beast power as coming out of Rome. And then if you fast forward through, during the Dark Ages, it was pretty much everybody kind of understood, uh, you know, who the primary players in prophecy was. When you come down to like the 11th century, you have a guy by the name of Joachim of Fiore who also identified the beast power as being the papacy. And then you fast forward a little bit more, you have Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, all of these reformers all said the same thing. When you move forward a little bit further down the road, you have Charles Spurgeon, and then you have, um, what was his name? Um, hands, uh, what was his name? Hands in the, sinners in the hands of the angry God. What was the name of that preacher? Anyway, so you have Spurgeon, you have uh, Dwight Moody, you have all of these men saying the same thing. It wasn't until about 150 years ago that some very old ideas that had been seeded during the Counter-Reformation in the 16th century began to take root. And so it's been only, you could say, 150 years since the Christian world has kind of taken a detour on what the Bible really teaches about the beast. And so tonight I want to review with you some of the material that we covered two weeks ago, because this is going to review, help us prepare for our topic on the mark of the beast tonight. This is from Revelation 12, starting from verse 13. The Bible says, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the, wo but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for how long? A time and? times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now, I want to just remind you that we learned about the dragon. We learned that it was Satan using the pagan Roman Empire to persecute and try to stamp out Christianity. We also learned that during this period of a time, times and half a time, during the Dark Ages, the papal power used her influence to try to stamp out those that did not agree with her teachings. I think I shared with you that 
During this period of 1260 years, there was a variety of Christian groups all scattered throughout different parts of the world, where basically different parts of Europe, where they tried to escape the church that controlled the state. And I think I mentioned, did I mention that in Italy, you had a group of people called the Waldensians? I don't know if I mentioned that to you. I think I did. In France, you had a group of people called the Huguenots. In Ethiopia, you had a group of people, well, the, we call them today the Ethiopian Christians. And basically, in different parts of Europe, you had groups of people that believed and had their authority based on Scripture. They refused to acknowledge the papacy. They wouldn't confess their sins to a priest. They wouldn't, you know, participate in indulgences. They wouldn't pray to Mary. And so these these small groups of Christians, they did their best to maintain the true faith that had been passed on from apostolic times. Now, we studied in this seminar that that 1260-year period, it began in the year 538, and it was marked by the fulfillment of the uh, Emperor Justinian granting the papacy both religious and civil authority. That didn't come to fruition until three kingdoms that stood in its way were uprooted the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Once they were uprooted, then, of course, you have this period of uncontested political and religious power. It rules for 1260 years, and we learned that in 1798, it was when the Pope was taken captive, put in prison in France, and from that point, the papacy, in essence, became a republic. It was no longer a civil power, although it remained a church system. Now, one of the things that prophecy predicted is that there would be, from this persecution, there would be a place where the faithful, where God's people could go in order to escape persecution. Notice it says, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the where? The earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now, I just want you to pause for a moment and think about this. During the 1260-year period, the Bible says that the dragon persecutes the woman. And then the Bible tells us that when this persecution becomes, comes to a head, you could say, this entity called the earth comes into play. And the Bible says that the earth swallows up the flood and now it becomes the refuge for this woman. Now, let's just review something. When does the papal persecution, or when does that period of 1260 years begin again? It begins when? 538, it ends in what year? 1798. Now, I want you to just picture with me for a moment. As we approach the end of this period, where did the people that were being persecuted by a church that controlled the state in Europe where did they go in order to find relief from persecution? Do you remember where they went? They came to a place called the New World. Isn't that right? And if you think about the time period, it's actually pretty coincidental. It's not coincidental, but it's actually quite, it fits, it dovetails quite nicely because if you understand the founding of America and you understand when the papacy receives its deadly wound, these events kind of overlap. Now, what's interesting, and this is just a little side note in history, when many of these people came to the U.S., they immediately tried to create a state that held their particular religious beliefs. In other words, 
they created microcosms of what they had left behind, except only their version of religion. Does that make sense? But as the state began to mature and as it began to develop, they realized, hey, we can't do this. And that's when James Madison uh, is one of the founding fathers said, the purpose of separation of church and state is to keep forever from these shores the ceaseless strife that has soaked the soil of Europe with blood for centuries. In other words, they began to see, and this is really, I think, divinely given wisdom, that anytime you try to mandate your particular version of religion, others will end up, you know, either rebelling against it or trying to overthrow that particular view of religion. And so America was founded, and notice that prophecy predicted that even though there would be this respite to the beast power, something would happen again in the future. Please notice Revelation 13, verse 3. The Bible says, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And we learned that wound was in 1798. But the Bible says his deadly wound was what? Healed. Now, this is in the future. And then the Bible says, in all the world, what did they do? They wondered after the beast. In other words, prophecy predicts that not only will the wound be healed. Now, let's review. What was the wound in 1798? The, the beast, the papacy, it kept its religious power, but what did it lose? Its civil power. So prophecy predicts that at some point in the future, the papacy will regain its civil authority and then it also predicts that all the world will do what? Wonder or admire the beast. Now, this is the part that I want to begin to elaborate on for you tonight. So as America was becoming a world power, and this was demonstrated through World War I and World War II, something happened across the ocean, and this was when a concordant was signed. Mussolini, in essence, granted the Vatican autonomy. He basically made them their own state, okay? In so doing, now look at this. This is the headlines from the United States side. This is what it says. Did you notice that right there? Did you notice this part? The wound of many years is healed. Now, remember, these writers, these columnists, back then, you know, America was more like fundamentalist, right? So there was definitely more understanding of Bible prophecy. It's very interesting that they put the wound of many years or, or heal wound of many years. Okay, so let me give you a little bit more uh, insight as to this event. It's noon on Monday, the fateful February 11, and we are standing by the obelisk at the north door of the mother of the churches of the world, St. John's. We have watched first Cardinal Gaspari and the premier Mussolini drive into Lateran Palace, and they are now sealing the accord between the Holy See and Italy. I do not deny it. I am in a tremble at the pregnant greatness of the moment, for my mind is dwelling not only in the piazza or on the scene behind the palace windows. My thoughts are shooting like the shuttle of a loom out from Rome to the four corners of the globe, weaving a fabric of the reverberations which this freeing of the Pope will awaken in every country. Now, please notice, by so signing this decree that gave them autonomy, this particular Catholic writer states that the Pope was being what? He's being freed. In other words, now he wasn't subject to any other temporal government. He could govern himself. Does that make sense? Now, 
Why is that significant? Now, I don't want to say that the deadly wound is completely healed, but make no mistake, this was the beginning of the healing. Do you understand this? This is when they were now granted civil authority. So one of the first things that they began to do is they began to, as they became, now you could say, according to prophecy, uh, a restored horn, a kingdom and a religious power, began to restore some of the lost things that they had given up during their period of the deadly wound. One of the things that they reaffirmed is the practice of indulgences. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Reformation with Luther, it was based on this very thing, that Tetzel was selling these indulgences, and Luther said, this is not biblical. If someone wants to sin, you can't give, you, they can't pay you and then be granted absolution just because they bought this indulgence. That, that's not how the Bible works. But guess what? In 1998, they reaffirmed this particular practice. That's not all. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was reaffirmed. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you, but another name for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, another name for that is the Holy Inquisition, okay? And I'm not making that up, okay? They reaffirmed and reinstituted the Office for the Holy Inquisition in 1998. Uh, the Church of Christ, despite the divisions which exist among Christians, continues to exist fully only in the Catholic Church. In other words, this is what they claim. And on the other hand, the outside her structure, many, that outside her structure, many elements which, cannot, which can be found of sanctification and truth, that is in those churches and ecclesial, ecclesial communities which are not yet in full communion with the Catholic Church. What is she saying? What, what are they saying? They're saying that only they offer true salvation to the masses. Everyone else doesn't have it. And if you're not connected to the Catholic Church, then, you know, you're, you, don't, you don't have that privilege. So that's another claim by them. Protestant churches yesterday reacted with dismay to a new declaration approved by Pope Benedict XVI, insisting that they were mere ecclesial communities and their ministers effectively phonies with no right to give communion. Coming just four days after the reinstatement of the Latin Mass, yesterday's document left no doubt about the Pope's eagerness to back traditional Roman Catholic practices and attitudes. So what's happening? They are coming back to the old practices that they held, which really sparked many of the protests which, protests which led to the Protestant Reformation. Now, while this is happening, prophecy has another element that I want to share with you tonight. And notice what it says in Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another what? Now, let's review. What does a beast represent in prophecy? It's a kingdom, political power, right? I saw another beast coming up out of the where? out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now, there's two things you should know. Number one, this is another political power. And number two, it comes up out of the earth. That's the clue. Did you notice something about the horns? Now, when you read about the first beast in Revelation 13, it says it has seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns, ten crowns. But the second beast, very different. It comes out of a different place. It comes up out of the earth. It has two horns. And it doesn't have any crowns on the horns. Notice it has two horns like what animal? It's like a lamb. And, you know, if you wanted to portray a gentle animal, you could have said, 
you know, two horns like an ox or two horns like, uh, you know, I don't know. If, but anyway, when you use a lamb in Scripture, almost without fail, you are indicating that it has the characteristics of who? Of Jesus, right? Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? So again, this is another clue about the identity of this power. And I want to read one more thing. And it says, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the who? The earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, prophecy says the second beast comes up out of the earth, which is where the persecuted people from Europe went to escape persecution. Clue number one. Clue number two, it has Christian characteristics. Clue number three, no crowns on its horns. Clearly, this is not a kingdom, but rather a republic. Number four, it would arise at the... So when you read Revelation 13 straight through, the first beast rises up, and then it receives its deadly wound, and it goes down. And at the same time as it goes down, the second beast rises... It is a place where people go when they were persecuted, but there's no king. Now, why am I sharing these characteristics with you? I think you already know. The second beast of Revelation 13 is a description of the United States. Now, this is not something that, uh, this is not something that we're, I'm sharing with you because, you know, I grew up, I was born here and I grew up in this country. No. Even... Bible students like John and Charles Wesley, like they understood that the next kingdom that would rise, you know, that would rise in prophecy would be across the ocean because every successive kingdom, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan, papal Rome, they were progressively moving west. And so Bible scholars predicted that the next kingdom that would rise would rise across the ocean. Now, I want to read to you what one Catholic scholar had to say about the future of global, uh, global geopolitics. This is what he said. The goal is a geopolitical structure for the society of nations designed and maintained according to the ethical plans and doctrinal outlines of Christianity as taught by the Roman pontiff as the earthly vicar of Christ. Now, what is this Catholic scholar saying? He's saying that the papacy's ultimate goal is to create a worldwide government a global government that is, in essence, run by Catholic values. Now, I want to make a point here because when this was written, there were some problems that existed, and um, one of them was communism. As you know, a religious power cannot have authority in a nation where they don't believe in God. Does that make sense? So they knew communism will be an issue. The second problem is that America has always had a healthy distrust of the papacy. Now, some of you may not know this history, but I'm going to give you a little background. Um, you know the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C.? When America announced its independence, different nations cut stones for the foundation. I don't know if you know this. And they sent it by boat over across the sea and they were placed in the foundational structure of the Washington Monument. One of those countries that sent a stone was the papacy. Do you know what the founding fathers did with that stone? They threw it into the Potomac River. They got rid of it. Because even as far back as the founding of the United States, 
there was a very healthy distrust of Rome. If you read the memoirs of Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln was very distrustful of the papacy. In fact, he said in his own words that his, he sees a dark cloud on the horizon of the American uh, future, and that cloud comes from Rome. Fast forward a little bit more. Um, do you remember that when John F. Kennedy ran for office? Some of you will, will remember this. It's not because he was from the Kennedys, which was really a dynasty founded on liquor sales. That wasn't the problem. <laughs> the problem was that he was Catholic, okay? And that was a big deal. But, you know, there was a seminal moment in American history that kind of, it wasn't the only thing. Do you remember in the movie, The Sound of Music? Do you remember this film? Rodgers and Hammerstein. Remember when they had this scene where this escaping family is aided by a Catholic convent. Do you remember that? The nuns rip out all the distributor, you know, wires. And so they say, sociologists say that this was kind of like a, a, a pivotal moment in the mindset of America to help kind of alleviate some of the animosity that Americans had towards the papacy. Now, why am I telling this to you? Because these two obstacles to papal dominance were really over come very, very progressively, but in the last, I don't know, four or five decades, we've seen this happen. Let me give you a little idea. When the papacy wanted to overthrow communism, they needed an ally, and they found one in President Reagan. You remember Reagan said to Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall, and it was Reagan and the Pope that worked together actually announce a strategy to overthrow communism. Now, when they met, these two men began to devise a means by which they could help topple communism. And they found an ally in Poland. They found this guy by the name of Lech Walesa. I'm not pronouncing it right. But anyway, he was the leader of a movement called Solidarity. And what did the papacy do? Well, the papacy and the United States, they supplied him with money, with resources, with people, with materials. And in essence, it was their foothold in the Iron Curtain that ultimately split it wide open. It's not a secret that it was a combination of the United States working with the papacy that would cause the downfall of communism. With the Pope's support, solidarity was formed. And John Paul II sent word to Moscow that if Soviet forces crushed solidarity, he would go to Poland and stand with his people. The Soviets were so alarmed, they hatched a plot to kill him. When the communist government fell, the impact on Eastern Europe was electrifying. And you know, if you know your history, this was a cover of Time magazine, the Holy Alliance. So there was definite proof that according to prophecy, these two powers, they would work together in the future to try to cause the earth to have influence or to, to have power over the civilized world. Now, what about the West? Well, that's not hard to understand. If you understand that America was founded on this principle of religious freedom, a lot has changed since then. Believing that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none, none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting the establishment of religion 
or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That building a wall of separation, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Well, it's no secret that has changed a lot in the last, I would say in the last 15 years, okay? If Thomas Jefferson were alive today, and this is, this is from, I think, the ni- 1989 or, 19- let me see, 1989, yes. I believe he would not only lead the struggle to scale the wall of separation, but that he would pro- also provide the ladders. The time has come to restore the vital relationship between the church and the state, between religion and law. Now, this is, <laughs> this is from one of the... Uh, large evangelical networks. I think I could say the name of it, but I could be wrong, so I don't want to quote it, but it's a, it's a television preacher that's on every Sunday. Very famous, very wealthy. This is what one of their programs said. I'm eradicating the word Protestant even out of my vocabulary. I'm not protesting anything. It's time for Catholics and non-Catholics to come together as one in the Spirit and one in the Lord. It's time for Protestants This is Robert Schuller, Crystal Cathedral, to go to the shepherd and say, what do we have to do to come home? Now, folks, you know, prophecy predicted this. It says in Revelation 13, verse 15, he was granted power to give breath or to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not what? Worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a what? A mark in their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, one of the things that I want to explain to you is that in Scripture, in the symbolic use of the term hand, it's representative of your actions. That's why the Bible says whatever your hand finds to do. So when we talk about a mark that goes in your hand or in your forehead, we're not talking about a literal mark. First of all, the beast is not literal. The image in this chapter is not literal. Why would the mark be literal? And most people have thought and surmised, you know, it could be like a little chip in your hand or it could be a credit card. Maybe it's going to be like a UPC code that's tattooed. Folks, I think you know this. A a tattoo or a chip or a a card, they're not going to affect your relationship with God. Does that make sense? The issue here is that whatever the mark of the beast is, it's something that allows or it's something that requires a person's choice or actions to participate in some form of rebellion against God. That's why at the end of time, the Bible describes the final message to the world, the everlasting gospel. This is what it says. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now, I want you to notice the people that don't receive the mark of the beast, notice how they're described. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the what? the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. Now, folks, make no mistake. The Bible is describing God's last day people in contrast to those who receive the mark of the beast. And it describes them as keeping his commandments. I want you to notice 
what goes on the forehead of God's people. It says here, then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the what God? Of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, notice this. God's people also have a seal or a mark. Did you notice that? It also goes on the forehead. Did you notice that there's a contrast between these two groups? One can receive it on the hand or in the forehead. The other one only receives this mark in the forehead. And there's a reason why. And I'll explain that a little bit later. But I want you to notice what the Bible equates with this thing that's written in the forehead. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his what? Father's name written on their foreheads. Now let's review. Let's just review something. We learned in the seminar that a name in Scripture is a representative of someone's what? Character. Do you remember we talked about that? And we mentioned that in Scripture, the name is a symbol or it's representative of someone's character. We talked about Abraham. We talked about Jacob. So when we look at the righteous in Revelation, it says that they have a seal in their forehead. And then it says here that they have the Father's name written in their forehead. That's, that tells us that God's people, they have whose character? God's character. Does that make sense? And you know, the, the beauty of God's character is revealed in his law. Notice what it says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. You shall bind them as a what? As a sign on your where? Hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your... Now, I want to make a point. If you read Deuteronomy 6 in context, God was talking about the Ten Commandments. Now, you have to know something. God never intended the Jews to write the Ten Commandments and tie it around their head or, or sew it to their arm. What he meant was, you take my law and you meditate it, meditate on it, and you do it. Remember actions, right? That's what God meant. But you know, when Jesus came, by the time Jesus came, the Jews had so perverted this idea that you know what they were doing? They would sew the Ten Commandments on cloth. They would actually tie it around their heads. It was called a phylactery. And you know what they did? The, the holier they wanted to appear, they would make it bigger. No, no, I'm serious. Like, I'm not making this up. So Jesus said, you make broad your phylacteries. So like they would have these things. And then they would sew it to their arms. And you know what? That doesn't do anything. Do you get it? Like doing that doesn't do anything because they were still planning to murder Jesus. Do you understand that this was symbolic? Does that make sense? What God was saying is, meditate on my law, and then do it. Does that make sense? That's what God was saying. But you know what this tells me? This tells me that what was understood to be a symbol of their allegiance to God at the end of time has become perverted to become a symbol of allegiance to another power. Here's what Hebrews 10 verse 6, 16 says. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their what? Minds I will write them. This is what God meant when he said to have this as a sign between your eyes and on your hands. This is what God meant, but they did not get it. Now, did you notice 
that the Bible describes his Sabbath as a sign. Notice this. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Now, this is important for us to understand because in the Catholic Church, Sunday is considered their sign. Notice this. Of course, the Catholic Church claims the change was her act, the change from Saturday to Sunday. And that act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. The Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Catholic Church says, no. By my divine power, I abolish the Sabbath day and command you to keep holy the first day of the week. And lo, the entire civilized world bows down in reverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. Now, I want to make a point. Some of you are sitting here and saying, I, I'm not Catholic but I still go to church on Sunday. And we do it because Jesus resurrected on that day. And I just want to make this point because this is important. Most scholars all agree that the day that Jesus resurrected on has no influence on Sunday being kept as a holy day. And that's just because when you study the subject out, you'll discover that it actually had no influence. That came much later. Like that came like 5th century, 4th century AD. So when you wonder why do Episcopalians, Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, why do they all keep Sunday? It's very simple. It's because all of these churches broke away from the Catholic Church but still holding on to certain errors. Does that make sense? There is no biblical foundation for Sunday. And if you really get down to the heart of it, no scholar would ever argue this point based on the Bible because it's not there. Now, <clears throat> it was the Catholic Church that has transferred this rest to Sunday in remembrance of the resurrection of our Lord. Thus, the observance of Sunday by the Protestants is an homage they pay in spite of themselves to the authority of the church. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof positive of that fact. Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Now, here's, here's something very interesting. Right now, the Catholic Church has increasingly upped the importance of keeping Sunday as a holy day. In our modern era, Climate change is a big issue. And in the context of climate change and a day of rest for, for, you know, humankind, they have pushed Sunday as being that day which celebrates humanity. The European Parliament calls on member states and the EU institutions to protect what day? Sunday as a weekly rest day in forthcoming national and EU working time legislation. It is not possible, this is most recent quote, Pope Francis, you find Jesus outside the church. And the mother church that gives us Jesus gives us our identity that is not only a seal, it is a belonging. Pretty bold statement uh, coming from the Catholic church. Now, the Bible predicts that there will be a group of people who will not receive the papacy's mark of authority. And I, I want to just make this clear. The beast power is the papacy. What is their mark? It's Sunday worship 
but legislated by law. The Bible says that at the end of time, there will be a group of people who will have the victory. It says, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have gotten the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Sorry. Okay, now, I want to ask you tonight, just consider with me for a moment. See, people ask me, does anybody have the mark of the beast right now? And my answer to that question is no. Sunday worship itself is not the mark of the beast. Sunday worship enforced by a law becomes the mark of the beast. Now, why is it that the mark of the beast goes in the forehead or in the hand, whereas the seal of God only goes in the forehead? So I want to explain this simply. As world events coalesce to a crisis, we are going to increasingly see natural disasters become a bigger and bigger problem. Have you ever noticed that when a big natural disaster, like let's say Hurricane Katrina, something of that magnitude, hits a major metropolitan area, many of the evangelical leaders, what do they say? They say something like this. They say, this is the judgments of God. We need to get this nation back to God. Have you ever heard rhetoric like that? You know, uh, Jerry Falwell. There's, all, there's different leaders that will say something like this. Now, I believe that in the not-too-distant future, we are going to see the perfect storm of tragedies befall not just our country, but the world. You could say fires, earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, these kinds of things. And then suddenly, the nation's moral senses will be aroused, and people will say, look, we've got to get this nation back to God. Well, how do you get everybody to show their allegiance, their fealty to God when there are all so many different denominations? One of the things that they agree on is the day that they worship. And there is going to be a push. There is going to be a push from the, the Christian organizations in this country to legislate a day of rest, Sunday. And when that happens, there will be some people that will say, you know, Sunday is not in the Bible. And there is no biblical evidence for you know, any other change of the Sabbath. But prophecy says, if you don't receive the mark, you cannot buy or sell. And I know you know this. Most Americans today are steeped in debt. Do you know that the average American right now has about $8,000 in credit card debt? Eight, I mean, that's a lot. By the way, someone has mine. I have zero. But anyway... $8,000. And did you know that most Americans have a mortgage, car payment? Some are still paying off student loans. Some people even have gambling debts and other things. Okay, so what happens? The, the, the pressure to comply is forced by economic pressure. Let's say that you could lose your car, your job, your degree, all of these things for not complying with a government mandate. Would there be pressure on people from that standpoint, yes or no? Sure. And that's why even though some people don't agree ideologically, they'll go along in their actions because of the pressure. Other people will say, yeah, I agree. America's going down the drain morally. We may not all agree on every doctrine, but we can at least agree on a day of rest. Let's show our solidarity to God. 
and let's unite behind this thing. And these are the ones that ideologically receive the mark in the forehead. You know, friends, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that God tests us in small steps. In other words, God does not expect us to suddenly have the faith of a martyr if we have not exercised faith day by day in the little test that God sends our way. Does that make sense? Some of you that are watching, some of you that are here, I know that you have heard about the Sabbath and some of you have said, yeah, it makes sense. It's in the commandments. It's part, it was a, a memorial of God's creation. I understand it. I, I think that's good. The question is, are you willing to keep it? Are you willing to follow what the Bible says about it? Because it's one thing to say, okay, this is true. But the bigger step is, are you willing to take a stand and do something about it? Because let me tell you, when the final test comes, it's not that all of a sudden we're going to have this miraculous courage, but if today we can make a commitment to say, Lord, I want to keep the Sabbath now. I want to be faithful, not just to this commandment, but because I love Jesus, I want to keep all of his commandments. That's the stand that it takes today to be ready for the big tests in the future. Does that make sense? Tonight, I want to ask my associates to pass out a card for you. Now, this is our last card of the series. It's called Revelation's Mark of the Beast. There's just four points on this card, and this is what it says. The first one says, I surrender my life completely to Jesus and the truth. If you want to say that tonight, would you please put a check by that? Just say, I surrender my life completely to Jesus and the truth. The second one says, I reject the beast and the mark of its authority. What we're saying is you do not accept the papal mark of authority, Sunday worship as enforced by government law. The third point says, I love Jesus and will honor him by keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday, the seal of God's authority. If you want to make that commitment to Jesus tonight, would you put a check by the third one? The fourth one says, I would like to be baptized soon. Now, I want to tell you, we will have some baptisms coming up here, and I want to encourage you, if you have never been baptized by immersion, why not follow the example of Jesus and make that decision for him today? You can put a check by that one. Please, just put your name on the card, and when you're done with that, would you just turn it over and hold it up, and I'll have my associates come by and collect it. Um, again, I want to say that if you're not able to make it to our, our session tomorrow at noon, please make sure to see me at the door because I have a special book that we're going to be giving out tomorrow, and I want to make sure that you get it, even if you have to catch up with the video later on, okay? As soon as you're done with that, would you just hold it up? My associates will pick that up. We want to close with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads as we close. Father in heaven tonight, I want to thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you for the Bible. My prayer tonight is that you would help all of us to make the small but courageous decisions to follow truth as you reveal it to us. And as we follow truth, Lord, when these greater tests come, help us to be faithful and to be ready. We are asking all of these things in Jesus' name we pray.